stand on your feet, and I think I will. Would you all please stand on your feet? Thank you. Now, the older people can't do this, but I want the younger people to just do one little quick jump in place right now. Ready? Thank you. Please be seated. Now, what if I had been in telephonic communication with a group in Perth, Australia, and I had asked them to stand on their feet and do a little jump in the air at the same time, straight through there, 8,000 miles away? Why wouldn't they just fly off the Earth into space? What makes them think we are upside down? What makes them think they are right side up, that they're living on the top of the world? If you were to get on an airliner and walk up to somebody and say, uh, how are you enjoying the trip? They were to say, trip, trip, what trip? Well, you're on an airliner, you're on a trip. No, I'm not on a trip. You mean you're not on a journey? Why no? I mean, what if you ran across someone on an airliner that was on a journey, had no destination in mind, didn't have the faintest idea how fast they were going, where they would be when they got there, didn't even know they were on a journey in the first place. Wouldn't that be a little bit weird? Because you are on a good, green, beautiful spaceship Earth, and you travel approximately 25,000 miles every single day. If you simply extrapolate that out into a lifetime the size of mine, I've now traveled more than 5,400,000 miles in my lifetime. And every single time you go to bed, you travel approximately 8,000 miles so that you are 8,000 miles in a different relationship to the other astral bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, than you were when you went to bed. Those of us who were a little older, if we had a pocket mirror, we could take it out. We could turn our head over this way and look at ourselves. It's rather ugly. You find out your cheeks sag, and some of us... Even your noses will turn down a little bit if it's long enough. Ever seen anybody absolutely sound asleep with their head on the pillow, with their mouth half open? Looks like their features are utterly sagging right into the pillow. That's gravity. All right? We're so intelligent. We know what there is in this universe. We know all about the Earth, all about science and laws and energy and so on. What is gravity? What is it? Anybody come up with a good definition? Newton thought that he had discovered something important when an apple fell on his head, and he called it gravity. But it doesn't make any sense, does it, that when orbital bodies spin, they pull things in. You and I both know that if we tied a rope to a bucket of water and we held it out here and started it spinning, that pretty soon if we got it going fast enough, we couldn't hold on to it anymore, could we? Because the more we spin it, the heavier it would get. And finally, if it would spin fast enough, it'd jerk us off our feet, we'd both go flying out here somewhere. Isn't it marvelous the way things work for us? We could have a room full of eggs. What would a room full this size of eggs weigh? How much force, how much weight would be on the bottom layer? Oh, man, tons of eggs, right? Why wouldn't the bottom layer get crushed? Doesn't, does it? Each one of those sort of supports the weight of the one above it, and you can stack eggs as deep as you would like, and nothing gets broken. Isn't that wonderful? It works out that way. Isn't it wonderful that our ponds and rivers and lakes and streams freeze from the top down instead of the bottom up? If they froze from the bottom up, no life could exist in the lakes and rivers and streams and ponds. Isn't it wonderful that water floats when it gets hard and freezes? and is actually lighter than the water beneath it and allows all the creatures to live? And isn't it wonderful that it exists in three states, solid, liquid, and gas, and that about 96% of all that you are is that substance called water? It's wonderful the way things accidentally just seem to work all around us. It's wonderful when you study what people try to define in scientific terms as laws, but cannot tell you where they came from or who put them in place or who ordained that they should always faithfully act in the same way. 
Now, we know that centrifugal force causes things to spin off in other directions away from the central part of the energy or the force that is being exerted. Not true with gravity. It holds you to this earth. If I take this book and I simply support it with my hand and I feel what I call weight, take my hand away, something, what is it, pulls the book down. We say we weigh so much. Well, that is our specific gravity. That's the measurement of the pull of gravity upon us. But when men went to the moon, they only weighed a fraction of what they do on the earth. That's why somebody came up with the idea that when some of our lunar astronauts stepped out onto the moon and drove the limb around up there, that they ought to take a golf club along and for the fun of it, hit a golf ball on the moon and really hit the longest drive of their life, even if they just barely hit the thing because it was no resistance to speak of and the ball just went way out of sight. That golf ball's still up there somewhere. So is a stiffened American flag because there is no wind and in order to make it where they could see it visually and take a picture of it, instead of just hanging limp on the flagstaff, they had to stiffen it with aluminum foil. And so are all those footprints and the tire tracks and so is the lamb up there and so is some of the hardware that we have left up in our space probes. We don't like to think in a day-to-day -day sense that we are on a beautiful green spaceship hurtling through space that every single day we travel 25,000 miles and that every year as we take our journey around the sun we are traveling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles and we think it's all very quiet very normal the permanent appearing present sometimes very easy to take for granted isn't it well I did a little bit of work on a computer and found out that we travel 175,000 miles every week and we actually travel 700,000 miles a month. And we're not aware of that travel. We just say, well, the sun went down. No, it didn't. The world just rolled away from it. And the sun came up in the east. No, it didn't. The world was simply rolling toward it. The last few nights, if you were able to get out and look up into the heavens out to the west, you may have seen what pagans thought they don't know God knows what the real names are we'll find out later what the real names are he says he brings out their host by number and that he calls every one of the billions upon billions of galaxies with more than 200 billion billion stars each star maybe possessing in its gravitational field dozens if not hundreds or even thousands of planets each planet having nine eleven a hundred five one moons around them but if you looked up there, you saw something that hasn't happened in 400 generations of human families, more than a thousand years, since those three bright stars, they call them Venus, Jupiter, and Mars, have been almost together. About a week ago, they were just like a little pyramid shape up there, almost together. And little by little, we noticed that Jupiter was moving seemingly a little bit toward the north away from Venus but there was Mars almost close into Venus's shadow you could hardly see it if it was hazy if it was clear if you were up in Colorado in the mountains you could have seen it a lot better phenomenal thing if someone had known and if they had been walking on the earth 1000 years ago they could have said in 1991 in June you will see this again and 1,000 years would go by, and it would never happen until June 1991, and there they are, all lined up that way again. Phenomenal, isn't it? God says that 1,000 days is like a day with him, or 1,000 years, rather, is like one day. Well, I found out that I travel 8,400,000 miles a year, and that I've traveled, I think I told you, a very small amount. I actually traveled 550 million years, and you can see it in my face now. I'm... I'm a, I'm a traveler that has been going for 550 million miles, I should say miles, in 61 years. 550 million miles I've made on this earth. It's a long trip. What is it all about? Now, I don't want to be real clinical with you, but if I were asking a whole group of spermatozoa, why are you here? And if they could talk, they would all say, I'm going to fight my way to that egg because it's my only chance to stay alive. Now, that's awfully clinical. 
but you learn that in high school biology, so I won't shock anyone, because the only way for that one little individual to survive and live on is to become born. In the book of Hebrews, the second chapter, it asks this question. One in a certain place testified, verse 6 of chapter 2, saying, What is man that you, God, are mindful of him, or that you care anything about him, you're concerned with him, or even know about him? Now, an evolutionist would say, well, a man is the end result of billions of aeons of gradual evolutionary change through happenstance and accident and fortuitous mistakes and so on. An evolutionist might as well have on the mantle over their fireplace this funny-looking weird blob with little dots in it. And somebody would say, what in the world is that? A surrealistic painting? He'd say, no, that's my ancestor. That's an amoeba. That's long-lost Uncle Frank. That's where I came from, an amoeba. Have some of you campers come far enough along in school to where in your science classes in biology they have taught you that the closest living relatives to hummingbirds are crocodiles? I can show you collegiate-grade textbooks which will tell you that. But a slimy, slithery caiman with a very slow metabolism very cold blood, very slow heartbeat that estivates and will hollow out beneath a tree in the river bank and will actually sleep for months at a time, moves very slowly, crunches its food, actually swallowing it whole, drowning maybe a deer or even a human, unfortunately, along the upper Nile River or some of the great lakes of Africa. They've actually found rusted belt buckles inside the bellies of some of those big crocodiles over there. But that over the billions of aeons, somehow that crocodile, some ungainly caiman, once or twice rubbed himself against a rock. And that some of these old slithery lizards and dinosaurs that crocodiles remind us of had loosely hanging frayed scales. You can find it in collegiate grade textbooks on evolution. And the next generation, mom was born with a loosely hanging frayed scale. And her kids were born with more loosely hanging frayed scales. And eventually there were little children being born. Do you buy that? You following me, kids? Everybody campers? Until eventually there was a whole bunch of lizards and dinosaurs running around and they were just covered with loosely hanging frayed scales. One day, one of these dinosaurs with loosely hanging frayed scales ventured out on the end of a limb, and with a huge croak, jumped off, flapped his arms, fell to his death and broke his neck. But that implanted something in the mind of his progeny. But there weren't any progeny because he was dead and he didn't survive to pass it on. But some of the others walked out onto a limb or a rock, and they croaked and flapped their huge, big, ungainly legs with all those loosely hanging scales. and. They fell to their deaths. And for millions of years, they kept falling to their deaths. And none of them survived. But eventually, one of them survived in spite of the fact that none of them survived. And he passed on to his progeny loosely hanging frayed scales until all over the world there were lizards running around with what looked like wings and feathers. Stop right there. Let me ask you a question. Why aren't Jewish babies born circumcised? Is that a logical question? Now you get that in school, you get evolution, you get a huge snootful of evolution every time you look at a documentary on the Discovery Channel, every time you read a beautiful article on astronomy in National Geographic, every time you pick up a newspaper, there's science writers talking about some bone they found in the Old Divide Gorge or down in Mexico and has pushed human ancestors back another 250,000 years or so, you are reading about evolution. They're trying to save the elephants and the whales and talking about these marvelous creatures and how they evolved. What is man? Are we the result of mindless evolution? Do cows walk instead of fly just to make it convenient for human beings so that we don't have to carry huge metallic umbrellas? I mean, when you stop to think about it. It's a nice world. I mean, the world is a wonderful place, isn't it? Isn't it wonderful that salt tastes good? What if salt tastes like acid? 
What if salt tasted like a rotten egg? But you have to have it. Your body can't live without it. You say, ugh, I've got to salt my food. Ooh, that stinks. And you eat it, nevertheless, because you know you can't survive, but salt tastes good. And you need it. Isn't that wonderful? And how come the world isn't all just a dull gray? And how come we can't have children by men just walking by a girl and spores coming out unseen from his ear? And suddenly she walks home and she says, Mom, George looked at me today and I'm pregnant. Isn't that wonderful? Or better yet, why couldn't we limit the population so that every time a girl wanted to have a baby, she would just cut off her little finger and plant it in a pot and water it? And out would come a baby. And you'd say, boy, she's got a big family. She's all thumbs, no fingers left. Eight kids. Doesn't work that way, does it? Something, somehow caused it to happen that the way you got here was by two parents, right? Not one parent, two parents. Well, when did that process get started? Where did your parents come from? From their parents. Where did they come from? From their parents. I understand there were some highway robbers back in my background somewhere. Of course, they tell the story about a guy in Scotland or England that uh, some noble lady was coming along and there was a carriage accident and he was a blacksmith and came out and raised up the carriage and flipped it off of her and saved some people some terrible injury and so on the spot she dubbed him Sir Armstrong and the family crest has a big bicep in it and it's a kind of a green and red tartan or the Spanish the Spanish I should say the uh, Scottish plaid that I have a necktie made out of that Scottish plaid because there is an Armstrong crest from England so they say that's where that came from. Well, it was very interesting to me one time many, many years ago to travel up about 90 miles north of London to the Fens, or the Wash as it's called. David will know about that because he's from England. It used to be an area where smugglers habitually uh, would be able to elude the authorities in these reed beds and so on, these little bitty coastal towns. A lot of it has been drained. There's a large cathedral at a little town, big city now, I guess, or a fairly good-sized town called Ely, E-L-Y. Well, in King's Lynn and Ely, England, are some of my relatives. My wife and I saw one of my great-great-grandfathers, I guess, named Armstrong, on a headstone in an old churchyard in Ely, England. And I got to thinking about that man who was an itinerant Methodist preacher that had about a hundred-and-some-odd-mile circuit that had to take care of three different churches on a horse-and-buggy kind of a circuit, and that I wouldn't be here if that man hadn't been here. If he hadn't lived... I wouldn't live. I've thought oftentimes of my grandmother Armstrong, her maiden name was Wright, and her mother was the only survivor. Or was it her grandmother? I think it was her grandmother. Was the only survivor of a sailing ship that went down off the North Carolina coast when a group of emigres were coming across from England. She alone was saved out of a couple, three hundred people. And if that hadn't happened, I wouldn't be here. So I get to thinking about all of that, and I go back, and you come up with the original question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the male or the female? Which came first, the honeybee or the flower? Which came first? You have to ask those questions if you're looking at basic questions like this one. What is man? Where did he come from? Why is he here? Where is he going? What are the chances of you surviving the human experience? None, except one, explained in the Word of God. Science can't give you any chance at all of surviving the human experience in spite of the fact that, believe it or not, right now there are hundreds, if not a few thousand, human bodies as dead as a doornail, frozen as rigid as a brick, in cold storage, waiting for that magical moment when science finally figures out how to thaw them out and give them eternal life. At least they're well preserved. They're frozen as rigid as a brick, and they are dead as a doornail. And they're going to remain that way, unless or until, the Bible says, there is a resurrection. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. Now, there is no form of human life or animal life or any other kind of life we can come to know of through our senses that is superior to man. 
I say through our senses. You don't sense, you don't touch, you don't feel God. You don't investigate God in a scientific laboratory. You can investigate what he does. You can investigate what he has placed in motion, some of the things he has created. The Bible says that we understand him by the things which he has created or he has made. So that man is able, and it's just awesome to watch what he is able to do, to cause gigantic elephants to do his bidding. A little slip of a girl can just utter a sound, and an elephant will put its trunk down and its knee, and the girl can step on the trunk, and the trunk will just raise the girl up to the elephant's back in a circus, and you can see this. We took our children when they were little, and we uh, certainly intend to enjoy that as my grandson comes up, to actually see a huge elephant stand on one foreleg and to go through every kind of trick with just one little human being that that elephant could step on and squash or swat with his trunk like a gnat and just kill him instantly. But the elephant is completely docile and subject to that man. Dolphins, chimpanzees, dogs, intelligent creatures, some of them huge and powerful like gigantic killer whales. Many of you may have been to some of the great water shows, like out at San Diego, SeaWorld, or over in Florida, SeaWorld. There's another SeaWorld, I think, down in San Antonio. And you can see these guys, I don't know how in the world they maintain their balance, swim down, dive down into this huge tank, and position their feet on the nose of a gigantic killer whale that weighs about seven or eight tons. And that thing came roaring out of the water with this man there, right on his nose, and the dolphin or the huge big whale crashes down into this huge pool as the man dives way over there. Just unbelievable to watch those shows. Surely you've seen some of it on television. It says here, You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Look what man has been able to do. When my father was a boy. He heard about some people called the Wright Brothers. And they had flown at Kitty Hawk just about the distance of the length of the wing of a DC-3. Later on, my dad took his first cross-country flight in a DC-3, and I believe it took most of a day and a half. I think they may even stop somewhere along the way and went all the way from California to New York. It seemed only a few years later, following World War II, my father and I went down to Los Angeles and were on the inaugural, very first time, 707 cross-country flight from Los Angeles to New York City. And how strange it was to me, after having flown for many, many miles in DC-3s and DC-4s and DC-6Bs and DC-7s, to look out there and to not see any propellers. And then it was frightening at the deck angle, because I was used to taking off with just a gentle little deck angle, and all of a sudden I'm taking off, and I'm, you know, it feel like you're going to slide backward in a jet airplane. You know how long ago that was? Way before a lot of you youngsters were born, 1959, in January of that year. Well, my father, when he presented some roses to my grandmother on her 80th birthday, and my grandmother was born the year after Abe Lincoln was shot. And she got to fly from Eugene, Oregon to Portland, Oregon for her birthday for the first time in her life to ever be on an airplane. And she was born way back during the days when she would tell me about the Indians coming along that weren't yet on the reservation in their little town in Iowa and how her grandfather would give them tobacco and coffee and sugar to keep them from robbing or stealing or taking their cows. My grandmother used to really fascinate my brother Dick and I with stories about the Indians when she was a little girl. And here she was 80 and flying in a DC-3 for the very first time. My dad finally, in his later years in life, went around and around and around this world time after time in a G-2 and later a G-3, Grumman Gulfstream. And I, when I remember the little bicycle shop out in Eugene, Oregon, where a guy had an old ragwing tail dragger that he built himself and would go out there and wheel it out into the road and actually take off and fly around Eugene. And I'll never forget the day when I heard the thunder of aircraft engines and got all excited and jumped my bicycle with a couple of neighborhood buddies and pedaled furiously to the airport. And here, landing at the old Eugene airport with a sod strip, were three Grumman Avengers TBM torpedo planes, World War II. It was just barely as the war was getting started. I was 11. 
Here were those old Grumman TBMs with huge, big radial engines capable of going maybe as fast as 240 nautical miles per hour. Torpedo bombers. They were so slow that when Torpedo 8 off the aircraft carrier Hornet tried to attack the Japanese carriers off Midway, the Akagi, the Kaga rather, Akagi, Hiryu, and Soryu, that every single one of that squadron were shot down and every man of the entire squadron perished since except one, Ensign Gay, who floated around out there in his, his survival vest and saw the entire battle from his vantage point as the only survivor of Torpedo 8. Little did I know when I got fascinated with that aircraft that eventually I would have a chance to learn to fly Cessna 182s and then 172s and other smaller aircraft and finally Cessna 310s and 420, 421s and finally King Airs and on up until eventually in my log there are more than 68 different types of aircraft and 11 types of jets. And I have flown for hundreds of thousands of miles all over the world in a Fanjet Falcon and a G2. I remember one of my most exciting moments was flying at the controls of the G2 from Manila, the Philippines, and land on Wake Island that was occupied by the Japanese during World War II. And I remembered seeing the movie called Wake Island, and I remembered seeing the maps and studying it and how the Japanese had taken it. And I hadn't realized that there were several little islands and coral atoll. I just thought of one island out there somewhere, but it's not that way. But it was really fascinating for me as a boy of 11, 12, 13, and 14, learning my geography from the front page of the Eugene Register Guard newspaper about the war news, to eventually visit places at the helm of an aircraft flying an airplane on up in the middle years of my life and to have that experience. I am looking forward to taking a journey into space. No, not in a capsule at the top of a gigantic, huge Saturn rocket. You ever seen a Saturn rocket up close? I have. I've had the privilege of standing there when those very men, Neil Armstrong and Aldrin and the others, were in that little capsule. And I was standing about one mile away, as close as they would let anybody get. And that missile, get this, was 36 stories tall. It was the same height of the Smith Tower in Seattle, Washington, that I had visited on the pinnacle of the highest building in Oregon and Washington in the entire Pacific Northwest in the early 1940s. And there was a missile out there with these huge rocket engines that were capable of seven million pounds of thrust. And when those huge clouds began to form with the orange flashing showing that it was actually ignited and it was slowly beginning to lift off, in just moments the shock waves hit me. And I had a microphone in my hand with cameras whirring, and I'm reporting on it and talking about this for our program on television. And it was like a giant hand was beating on my chest. The change was jingling in my pocket. The earth was shaking. And the so-called diamond effect of the staccato explosions that actually just pierce the sound barrier in such a way that you can't even begin to believe it. It gives it a kind of a crackling sound you hear over video or television. But to our human ears, it was utterly deafening. What an awesome sight. A 36-story rocket, 7 million pounds of thrust, slowly going up, gathering speed, arcing out over the Atlantic to disappear into the vast distance, and then to know that I had time to go get into the jet, fly up to Minneapolis, drive in a car to Orr, Minnesota, and four days later sit in the living room with some friends of ours up there, Scott and Dorothy Erickson, and to watch those men land on the moon. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. Anciently, when God said, this now they begin to do, they were building a tower to try to get all of the races of humankind into one homogeneous mass and have a super race and a super world government. And this tower was to be a symbol of life. Obviously, they weren't trying to get to heaven or they'd gone to the top of the nearest high mountain. They were down in a plain, the plain of Shinar the plain of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, where today ancient Babylon is now modern-day Iraq. And it was merely a sign or a symbol of their great race they were trying to build. And God confounded their knowledge. He said, lest they should begin 
to accelerate in their knowledge and their technology much more rapidly than he intended. When you think about the interminable periods of time from the great empires of the past that came down to rubble and collapse of Egypt, of Greece, and of Rome, and you can go and see their monuments today and there is nothing like on the face of the earth. Any contractor today who would be told by his government, I want you to build me an exact duplicate of the Great Pyramid of Giza, would just say, you may as well shoot me. Just put me up against the wall, get a firing squad, and shoot me because it can't be done. It's impossible. Then you think of the interminable period of time from the loss of all that technology and knowledge until modern times, then you have to think of how incredibly rapidly things have developed. The great car for dragging the gut, we called it, in Eugene, Oregon. That meant just going up and down Main Street, whistling at the girls or throwing rotten tomatoes to seeing what would happen. It was a 1936 Ford. I had the great privilege a few years ago of being able to find up in Idaho and to buy a 1930 Model A that came off the assembly line in February of that year. That's when I came off the assembly line. And I restored that car and had beautiful paint in the interior, and I've got a big picture about that big on my office wall of that beautiful car. And I had 777 AC for a, for a license plate. And I would be driving down the freeway, and I'm the same age of that car. And people would say, look at that antique. And they meant the car. They didn't mean me. They meant the car. Look how rapidly something that was built in 1930 is an antique. Now, of course, a lot of you kids think that a classic 1960 Thunderbird is an antique. Why, you know, that, that just seemed like yesterday to me. But then I remember my dad saying these things out of the pulpit, and I remember how it went over my head then. When I was 16, and he would be talking about why 20 years ago, I, huh? I tuned him out. That was four years before I was born. It's like saying, now, you remember back before you were born? I'd say, huh? How can I remember before I was born? I wasn't here. But we tend in our youth and in our life as it goes along to think, sure, I was here. I've studied those things in a history book. I've always been here, and I'm always going to be here. No, we're not always going to be here. It says here that he, in that he put all in subjection under him, verse 8, we see that he left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things under him. But we see Jesus, who was made, like we are, a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom, John 1 and Hebrews 1 prove that he is the creator God of the Old Testament, are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings, and I talked about that a great deal last week, to make the captain, the author, the originator of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It's hard to us to imagine, to go way back in time, to that moment when a visitor from outer space came to this earth. And we're talking now about a period that is a very short period of time as this universe goes that they now claim is more than eight billion. A few years ago, the classic term was about four and a half billion. Now they're claiming it's more than eight billion. They may be wrong. It may be 600 billion years of age. They have no idea how old are all the basic rocks in the Precambrian so-called strata of this Earth. When you saw the picture of the soft landing on Mars and saw a television camera zooming in on rocks of that reddish surface, if you did, I have seen it and have pictures of it, from NASA, we've actually had a soft landing on Mars up there, that little pinprick of red light that you see in the sky, a planet, and that there are rocks just like the rocks on this Earth. Those rocks weren't deposited by the Mississippi River. They have been up there for who knows how many billions of years. Can you imagine a being coming to this Earth, maybe in a whirring spaceship, having four whirring cylindrical or round or disc-shaped wheels. And standing in those wheels appeared to be four creatures having the face of a lion and an eagle and an ox and a man. And they had straight feet like oxen's feet, as it says in the first chapter and the tenth chapters of Ezekiel. 
you could have seen that apparatus hovering over the surface of the Earth, and had been there when you heard an Earth-splitting, roaring voice that said, Let there be light. And the clouds began to roll away, and bright sunshine began to stream through. If you could have seen when he said, Let the dry land appear, and the waters were tumultuous, and all of a sudden, with a roar, gigantic cascades of water just roaring off the continents as all the continents were shoved above the watery envelope around the entirety of the earth. You could have watched this being ascend from a throne between those living creatures and stoop along a muddy riverbank as the waters were reciting on, or receding rather on that sixth day and take clay in his hands and begin to mold it and make it and form it and shape it until he had a perfect sculpture of a human being. And like a fireman giving resuscitation, put his mouth over the nostrils and blow. And to see a pink hue began to form over this clay model. And to see a man sort of stretch and yawn and look around in wonderment. And this great being begin to talk to him and say, Hello, your name is Red Mud. Because that red mud there is what you're made from. That's where you came from, that red mud. Now, where did you come from, girls and boys? Well, you see all these trucks going by out there? A lot of them are refrigerator trucks. 46% of the vegetables grown in the United States come from the San Joaquin Valley of California and the Imperial and Coachella Valleys. Many of them are born indigenously in your own state. If you could have in front of you the entire convoy of trucks filled with sheep, goats, and cows, milking cows, filled with all kinds of packages and canned goods and tin goods that represent what had to come in your mouth, and I won't go through the rest of it, to get you where you are today, to be who and what you are, to sustain your life, to cause muscle and flesh and, tin and sinew to grow and bone, so that there you are, with the marrow of your bone producing, literally, hundreds of millions of blood cells every single day. Did you know that? Right while you're sitting there, probably a million blood cells every time you snap your finger are being produced by the marrow of your bone that help you fight disease. Wondrous things going on inside your body right now. If you could think about a little carrot. I used to talk to my kids when they were little about how things grow, and we would go out and experiment. We'd put a seed in the ground. I'd take a radish seed, I remember. Uh, maybe it's a maybe it's a bean, but anyway, we would take it. And I would take a razor blade and slice it in two. What do you see there? Nothing, just a little bitty old round seed. Nothing you could see there. Well, how does that radish know it's a radish seed? Well, just sticking in the ground, and the radish puts out a little root, and it gradually forms a little bulb as a little green kind of a series of leaves form above it, and you pick it up, and it's related to the turnip family, and it's hot. It's got a ruby red exterior and a white interior, and it's kind of hot on the exterior. The interior is kind of sweet. And the little roots are saying, I'm a radish, so I need potassium and iodine, and I need all of these minerals and metals to form in a shape of a radish. And that's what a carrot is saying. I'm a carrot. I'm going to be yellow. So I need all these various nutrients out of what? Out of dirt. Same dirt. You can take one box of dirt and grow any vegetable that has ever been created, and that vegetable will only get those specific nutrients that are to become that vegetable. It'll be shaped and formed. It'll have the color, the weight the sectional density, the taste, the flavor, and the appearance of the vegetable it's going to be out of the same box of dirt. But then you came out of those boxes of dirt, out of those vegetable gardens. That's where you came from. We're all human beings who are only here because of what we eat, what we drink, what we imbibe and take into our body to keep a systemic organism alive. And it says we are here for a purpose. It became him, verse 10, for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. The permanent appearing present can betray us very, very quickly. A few days ago, we were driving along with my daughter-in-law and my son back here, and we turned a corner right out here at the flashing light, and we went into town, and we went to a Mexican restaurant. And we had dinner. And when we came back, we saw a lot of bright lights, and there was a huge crowd of people, 
and there were people standing all over the highway, and here were about three or four police cars, and there was an ambulance and a wrecker. And as we drove by, I saw the partially naked leg of a human being in a crushed car and a body lying under plastic on the roadway and found out in the news the next morning the carload of people were broadsided by a pickup truck right up here, about three miles, four miles away, and some people were just driving down the road, minding their own business, and all of a sudden, flying across the road out here where this new construction is going was a red pickup, hit them so hard, the cars just tumbled all over, and you're just driving along and somebody says, oh, look out, and you're dead. Two of them are dead. One critically injured, other people hurt. The other day, just as Stephen Antion was kissing his wife goodbye, where they live up in Altadena, north of Pasadena, California, and uh, she was going to go to work, and he was going to go along a little bit later on. They were out in the driveway by the car. She was already in the car. And he started to walk back to the house, and he felt kind of dizzy. And he heard things cracking and breaking, and the trees were swaying, and the birds got quiet, and the dogs were howling. And she wondered what was the matter. She couldn't quite hear it inside the car. Well, they have an older house built of masonry, and unfortunately, they had just finished painting and plastering, and every room in their house has plaster and paint and cracks all over the floor, and it is a mess. I just talked to my sister Beverly this morning, and to the Antians in California, well, the other day there was a six-point earthquake, seven miles deep, and the entire gargantuan mountain range of those huge mountains above Los Angeles are now three to four inches higher in the air than they were just the other day. Billions upon billions of cubic yards hurled in the air because seven miles deep some strain was on a fault line and it was building up and building up and finally just snapped and the shock went up throughout all of Southern California I think one person dead is all very minor damage but of course millions of dollars no doubt and a lot of property damage on my birthday long before you were born February 9 1971 I just wakened up and all of a sudden, I began to feel dizzy. I heard this eerie quiet, and then the dogs began to howl and wail, and I looked out and saw the water in the swimming pool was sloshing over the sides. And I was feeling sick and dizzy, and I heard crash, crash, thud, thump all over the house. And I grabbed my wife, and I said, let's get the kids. We ran to the bedroom, and our children were a lot littler back then, and we went into a little closet area where we're under one of the heaviest parts of the house, and where there were plenty of studs and beams and everything, and just stood there until this nauseum, this nauseous feeling of swaying and so on had stopped. And I said, uh-oh, this was the big one. I said, the major skyscrapers in Los Angeles are flat on the ground. And I thought they might have been. That was the Silmar quake of 1971. Well, I went upstairs to look, and I had a trophy room. There was an elk on one wall and a moose on the other one. And there they were in the middle of the room with their horns locked together and my chandelier down there, utterly broken, ripped off the ceiling right in the middle of the elk and the moose. And we looked into the bathroom and here was all the bric-a-brac and the glass vases and things that we had in there for decoration lying on the ground, all broken. I went over to the college and went up to the fourth floor and looked at my office and every bit of the plaster in the cracks of that great big structure was just shot out into the room. My credenza was lying on the floor. All of my files were open and tipped over. The lamps were off of the tables. And the columns that went up through four stories were cracked and kind of hanging askew. The boys in the boys' dormitory at uh, Terrace Del Mar, the Del Mar Manor, went rushing outside because the fireplace collapsed inside in years of soot that it accumulated came boiling out into the hallways and they could smell it and it sounded like the building was on fire. We had over a quarter of a million dollars damage that morning from an earthquake. Now some of you haven't experienced, many of you probably have not experienced an earthquake. Well, let me tell you something. Surprises can occur. Things can come along to challenge the permanent appearing present. An accident can take place, a sickness, something untoward, something unexpected, something terrible can happen. 
But there is nothing that will get your attention quicker than when you're standing on what we like to call good old terra firma when it's not firma anymore, but it is moving around beneath your feet. That will get your attention quicker than anything. Many years ago in London, England, they had a temperature inversion, and because they burn an awful lot of coal over there, it became as black at noon as it normally is at midnight. The pollution was so deep and so thick and hung over London for so long that housewives shopping in their hundreds of thousands in the downtown streets of London dropped to their knees and tore holes in their nylons, praying aloud, Oh, Lord, save me, because they thought the day of the Lord had come. Now, going by outside on this road and all over the United States of America today are millions of people who have heard a little bit about God, millions of them who believe one way or another in God, millions of them who go to church, Millions of them who think there's going to be a judgment, a day of reckoning, who've heard about a tribulation or the day of the Lord, but they don't really believe it all that firmly. But when something happens that would just suddenly shock them, as those housewives in London, when the lights came on at noon, comes along to just shake them out of their daily rut in which they live, they react very strangely. They were unabashed, unashamed. They didn't say, excuse me, but would you mind if I pray for a moment? They just fell to their knees and said, oh, Lord, save me, right out there in public, because they thought God was intervening in the earth. That's what many people think when an earthquake strikes. You know, we're on a trip. We're on a journey. We're taking a trip through life, and oftentimes we don't really think about the purpose of it all. In Hebrews, we read that, but I want to go to 2 Peter, the third chapter now. 2 Peter, the third chapter, just back just a very few books in the Bible, where Peter said in verse 2 that he wanted them to be mindful of the words spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where is all this stuff about biblical prophecy and the second coming of Christ, the tribulation, the heavenly signs, the day of the Lord? For since the fathers fell asleep from ancient antiquity, way back in history, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Everything is the same. It's only a lot of cycles. There have always been bad times. There have always been droughts. And there will be droughts. There have always been wars, and there will be more wars. There have always been crimes. It's just better reporting. We didn't hear when we didn't have telephones and television about all the crimes. There were just as many, but they couldn't get the information to us, so we didn't hear about it. I mean, the Serbs and the Croats are going at it today, but so what? I mean, they used to do it all the time. We just didn't hear about it. Everything is cyclical. Everything goes along just like it always did. It's uniformitarianism. Everything is uniform. Everything is slow, gradual, and cyclical. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Now, we could take an hour, and I don't have time, to ask all of you, where do your nylons and pantyhose come from? Where does this plastic pen in my pocket come from? Where do petrochemicals come from? Where does gasoline come from? Where does coal? What is coal? Where does it come from? Well, that is called fossil fuel. Why is it called fossil? Because it is the fossil remains of former living things. There is no new oil being deposited in the ground today. There is a finite amount in this spaceship there to fuel mankind in this modern time. There is just so much coal and there is no more. There is no coal being formed today. They tell us that it may have taken great huge floating rafts of vegetable materials of uprooted trunks of trees and branches and vines and leaves maybe a hundred feet thick to make compressed a foot of anthracite. 
But yet there it is. And in some of the coal you can actually see the beautiful imprint of ferns and of palms and of living things that lived millions upon millions of years ago. Were there dinosaurs? Of course there were. You can also get in a bus and you can drive a little bit southwest of here and you can go just a little bit southwest of Dallas, Texas, and you can walk along a stream bed over there, and you can see with your own eyes the deep tracks of three-toed dinosaurs side by side with bare human footprints in solid rock that was excavated beneath cut banks of rivers in the sight of doubters and skeptics with television cameras going because they didn't want to disturb it or to say that anybody had been in there to plant it and they can see that here's a whole vast area that people can actually go to. I've got books on it that show that yes, dinosaurs did live in the time of man and vice versa. Were there dinosaurs? Sure. But did men come from apes and begin to drag women along by the hair and club one another? Did, did there, were there really cave men? Oh, sure, men have had to live in caves when they fled from other men. The Cro-Magnon man, the Neanderthal man, of course, the Piltdown man, that was a hoax, that's a different story. But oh, yes, there were creatures that lived in the past. They are willingly ignorant of this, that the earth was standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come suddenly, when we least expect it, as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what kind of people ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God? wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. I know that for some of you it's a little bit difficult because your parents are members or affiliated with or supporters of an organization called the Church of God International. But you see, I was a young boy who grew up whose father was the founder and the president of the Radio Church of God and later on the Worldwide Church of God. And I didn't believe much of what he said. And I ran away and joined the Navy to get away from an unpleasant home situation. And many years later, as an adult, had to come back and to study and to compare and to try to find for myself what was right. And I began studying the literature and the teachings of other churches and comparing it very carefully with what my father taught. And I could see where they were absolutely lying and where there were glaring errors about what they claimed was true, about an ever-burning hell and the immortality of the soul and so on. Now, when I think about all that is being accomplished in God's church today and heard that very moving song and thought of what it meant to all of you kids, friends from now on, and young people coming together here in this camp for two days from all over the United States who didn't even know each other before, and to form fast friendships that will last for not five years or ten years, but maybe millions of years, hopefully millions of years, throughout this lifetime and beyond. It fills me with a sense of tremendous gratitude, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of joy, and a sense, too, of purpose, to know that you are provided with something that I never had. I never had an opportunity as a little child growing up in Eugene, Oregon, the son of the Saturday-keeping preacher who kept Saturday for Sunday that lived outside of the incorporated limits of Eugene, Oregon, and was very ashamed and embarrassed of who and what my father was. Because there was no church organization to speak of. There was no youth program or youth camp. Oh, there were two or three other kids in the church, I suppose, my age that I might have known, but I never got to see them except maybe once a year, and even then it wasn't that much of a big deal. My friends were in the school where I went, and they all kept Sunday. 
the logical day instead of Saturday for Sunday. So when I see that we are developing a youth program and we have an opportunity for you youngsters to be here for a couple of weeks, I think of what it costs, an enormous amount. I'll give you all of those statistics as I write about it to your parents because we're going to have to uh, have a little tuition next year to try to help us out. We're about $50,000 negative at the bank right at the moment as I speak to you. Uh, but we had to put out about $12,000 for cots and mattresses. And we had to buy these shirts, and we had to buy the food. And if you think $75 even began to cut into what we had to pay to conduct this summer camp for two weeks, think again. Why do we do it, youngsters? Why do you think we do it? Do we have to do it? Of course not. Is it a priority? Is it more important to us than a television program? No way. More important than the booklets and the articles I write? No way. More important than all of our churches and our evangelistic efforts and personal appearance campaigns? No, not at all. But it's important. It's something we ought to do, something we ought to be able to do, something we ought to be able to expand, something we ought to be able to do better. We ought to have more education. We ought to have better structured classes. We ought to be able to have more programs. We ought to have more facilities. I believe that. I think it's worthwhile because I know that every single one of you has a personal destiny. I did, but I didn't have the faintest concept of what my destiny was the day I hopped on my bicycle and rode to the Eugene airport any more than you've got the concept today of what your personal destiny is going to be as you say goodbye to some loved friends and maybe shed a few tears and hug a few necks and get in your parents' car or board an airplane or on a bus and go back to where you came from. These scriptures that we briefly read talk about an enormously important eternity, a future that never stops, that never quits, but just goes on forever and ever and ever. Now, some of you expressed wonderment. You were wondering, what about what happens when you're still young and you're not a member of the church, you're only 13 or 11 or 15 or something, and all of this stuff comes apart and the Great Tribulation comes along? Well, maybe you haven't heard yet that I wrote an article on that, a booklet on that, a brochure, only a few weeks ago entitled, When the Kingdom of God Comes, What of the Children? So get a copy of that before you go home or write it down and make sure and get it and study it and read it because there are many, many scriptures in there that pertain to exactly that question that will answer it for you. I am 100% behind and for the summer program. Next year, I'd like to see twice as many kids and I'd like to keep them here for a month. I'd like to have a program of four weeks if we could, or if we can't do that, two programs for two weeks apiece. Because as I said last week, I have a dream, and my dream is that eventually we will have Imperial Academy, and some of you young people will be the pioneer students resident on this campus for full semesters right on through the year, going to classes at the collegiate grade and getting a diploma, and I hope to go as soon as we possibly can for accreditation and to start toward that at the very beginning so the youngsters who come through that educational program will have a degree that means something when they go back home where they came from. Yes, we do dare to dream, and we would like some of you young people to share in that dream and to be pioneers in what is eventually going to be built on these grounds. So I hope you've really had a wonderful summer. You've had a lot of things to take home with you. I hope you've learned in the sessions you've had every morning, as different ones have spoken to you, learned from each other. Had a very wonderful time out there trying to get up on skis. I hope every one of you made it. I don't know if you all did or not. They said it was one kid. They drug him around the lake, I guess, till he was half drowned. They probably put about 70 miles on him and never did get that kid up on skis. I don't know who that was, but we won't worry about it. We'll get you up on skis next year then. I don't think anybody got seriously hurt. There's nobody missing. Thankful for that. Nobody this year, I don't think, put his teeth all the way through his lower lip, did he? Being dragged around on an inner tube or something. Wouldn't want that to happen again. Well, we loved having all of you youngsters here, and we're going to look forward to seeing you at the Feast of Tabernacles scattered around the country. Do me a favor now, one final parting shot before I quit. Sit down the moment you get an opportunity, and you write from the heart as sincerely as you know how what do you feel can be done 
to make the summer program better. What would you like to see? What development would you like to see? What kind of classes? What kind of programs? What do you think would really be helpful to make it even better next year? And then you send that in to Mr. Carnes. Will you do that for me, all of you? Every one of you, really think about it. Contribute. Be a part of it. And let us know what can we do to make it even better for you next year. Thank you all. We've enjoyed having you here. God bless every one of you and keep you safe on the way home.